Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- Four five one four two two zero. GreatNorthernElectric.com serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. Two zero six eight four two three six two zero. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance. We help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. Are you a service member thinking about buying or selling your home? Whether you're active duty, a veteran, or a family member, you need a real estate professional who understands the unique challenges of the military. A Navy veteran, certified military relocation professional, prior Blue Angel, and CEO of the Repoint Real Estate Group at Keller Williams Realty Puget Sound, Scott Lever specializes in helping military families relocate to and from the Kitsap Peninsula. Call him today at 206-486-4891 or visit online at repoint.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. What's cracking, Podcast Phil? You found the Bystander Podcast. On today's episode, we have Carl Eikenberry, courtesy of Town Hall Seattle, taped March 28th at the Summit on Pike. To welcome you to tonight's conversation with uh, Ambassador Carl Eikenberry. Uh, this event is presented by Town Hall and um, Mercy Corps as part of Town Hall Civic Series, a series sponsored by the Wincote Foundation, the Caffin Foundation, 
the Real Networks Foundation, the True Brown Foundation, and KOW. So tonight's event really is the brainchild of Mercy Corps, um, part of this fantastic broader campaign that they are doing that you will learn more about in just a minute. So I don't have a lot to say on behalf of Town Hall, other than for those of you who are keeping track of Town Hall's continuing saga, obviously we are not in our building tonight. Uh, unfortunately, when first we had planned this, we had hoped to be over there. There's some construction delays, but we will we will be getting into the building a little later this spring uh, and launching fully uh, early next fall uh, with a program of year-round civic science and arts and culture programs. So keep an eye out for all of that. But in the meantime, thank you so much for Mercy Corps for the organizing and work you're doing and for all of the fascinating uh, information we're going to learn tonight. So without further ado, I will turn it over to a framing of tonight's program to Mercy Corps' Adrian Karecki. Adrian, thank you. Good evening, everyone. It's nice to see you all here. Edward, thank you so much for the warm welcome. And Mercy Corps is so proud to be part of, of this evening's events. And I also want to start by recognizing a few of our key partners, including the Town Hall Seattle team, Global Washington, and of course, Mercy Corps' amazing staff who made this happen. So if, if the staff, uh, we've got board members in the room and also some longtime supporters. If you could please raise your hand and let's give them a, a round of applause. I see you back there. Okay. So we are gathered here tonight for a simple reason. There are 68 million people around the world who have been driven from their homes due to a peak in violent conflict. From South Sudan to Yemen, Afghanistan and beyond, more people than ever are in dire need of life-saving assistance. Humanitarian organizations like Mercy Corps provide critical aid and work with communities to rebuild stronger futures together. As the scale and intensity of conflict worsens, the global need is far exceeding resources and humanitarian resources that we have available. This is why Mercy Corps is committed to addressing the root causes of conflict and help prevent new crisis from erupting. And as we all know in this room, it takes local action to lead global change. So thank you again for being here. Tonight, we're building political support for the Global Fragility Act, reintroduced by Congress earlier this month with wide support from lawmakers across the political aisle. The legislation aims to establish a first-of-its-kind U.S. government initiative primarily to prevent and reduce violence and conflict in some of the world's most fragile countries. Washington's congressional representative, Adam Smith, has been a leading champion of this legislation and we are very, very thankful for his efforts. I invite you to learn more about the Global Fragility Act by uh, visiting Mercy Corps' webpage found at the bottom of your event program on the second page. Please take a look at that. I also encourage you to consider signing our online petition asking all of Washington's congressional delegation to support this bipartisan bill. Your support is very critical on this and we appreciate it. Now to introduce our distinguished guests. First, Naja Haider, a friend and colleague and one of the most inspirational and respected women at Mercy Corps. She will be moderating this evening's session. Naja is a regional director in the Caucasus and Central and South Asia and directs and oversees programs and teams in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Tajikistan, 
Kyrgyzstan, and Georgia. It's quite a portfolio. She has a long list of impressive experience in both the public and private sectors. I am also honored to introduce one of the world's leading scholars and public servants who has dedicated his career to preventing and resolving deadly conflict. Ambassador Carl Eikenberry is currently the director of the U.S. Asia Security Initiative and faculty member at the Shorenstein Asia Pacific Research Center. He is a faculty member at the Center for International Security and Cooperation and professor of practice at Stanford University. And it goes on. <laughs> Before his arrival at Stanford, he served as the U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan from 2009 to 2011, and prior to his appointment as Chief of Mission of the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Ambassador Eikenberry had a 35-year career in the United States Army, retiring in April 2009 with the rank of Lieutenant General, and after having served as the Commander of American-led Forces in Afghanistan. We are very lucky to have him with us here tonight, and please join me in inviting the ambassador to the podium. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that introduction, Adrian. The, um, at Stanford uh, several years ago, somebody was giving an introduction with the, with, and had done brilliantly with the introduction, best of intentions, and they got to the culminating line, which was after 35 years of Army service, uh, Carl Eikenberry retired at the rank of lieutenant. Now, <laughs> this is a community that knows the military, and they left out lieutenant general, so was, <laughs> people started to walk out at that point. Uh, but thank you very much for uh, the, the uh, seriously for the kind words of uh, introduction. I have a few thanks that I want to uh, give myself here. First of all, uh, where's uh, Edward? Somewhere in the uh, lights here. Uh, perhaps has gone on, but I did want to uh, thank Edward, the town hall, Seattle's uh, curator of lectures, and in the uh, great spirit of uh, Alexis de Tocqueville. Uh, focusing on trying to keep the uh, community and our civil society engaged in the uh, ideas of the day and the important issues of the day. I also wanted to thank Mercy Corps board member uh, Lucy Helm. Thank you, uh, Vice President uh, Kareki, for that, uh, very uh, that very nice introduction. And the regional director, Nadja, who I'll be on the uh, stage with here shortly. Uh, it is an honor to be invited to come here and to participate in this discussion with the Seattle community on the value of diplomatic and foreign assistance tools to mitigate and prevent violent extremism and conflict. But first, a, a shout out to uh, Mercy Corps. Uh, Adrian, your organization's mission statement is truly inspirational, and it is to alleviate suffering, poverty, and oppression by helping people build secure, productive and just communities. So that's the mission statement. And then the way you go about to uh, use the military parlance of operationalizing that mission statement. Uh, for over the past four decades, your institution has accomplished this mission with compassion, with courage, with determination, with creativity, and with innovation. And I know this from firsthand experience as a, a soldier and a diplomat in Afghanistan, the value of what Mercy Corps brings to a bear in troubled spots around the world. 
again, a great honor to be here to participate in the program tonight. Let me uh, ask if I could at the outset here, raise your hand if you've been to Afghanistan before and look around. Okay. And I see in those hands two great people I've served with. I see uh, a reporter from the Seattle Times who uh, went with us, went with us, went with my wife and I on a trip into uh, more distant parts of Afghanistan. And uh, good to have you here. Let me start with a, uh, a story about Afghanistan. And when I was first sent to Afghanistan in 2000, 2003 as an Army Major General, I knew this much about the uh, country. So when Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld called me in and said I was going to uh, be off and commanding our mission to help build the Afghan army and to serve as our coordinator with the United Nations for what we call security sector reform, I tried to uh, learn as much as I could quickly. Uh, couldn't learn a lot in a month. So when I got on the ground, I do what, did what Mercy Corps would do. You start to learn about the local situation as fast as you could. So I had a dinner about 72 hours into my stay in Afghanistan. It was with Brigadier General Asifi, who was then the commander of the Afghan border police. He did not speak English. He spoke fluent French. My French is not uh, too fluent. So we were going through my interpreter, Dr. Najib. And Dr. Najib, his uh, ability to translate was actually quite good. We, we weren't talking about nuclear nonproliferation or technical topics. So the, his ability to capture the spirit of the person that was talking to me was very important. I knew he would convey my spirit quite well. So as time went on, General Sifi got more and more excited. He was, it was still early on with uh, America's presence in Afghanistan. And I was truly interested. And I could tell that Dr. Najib, as he was getting more excited, though, I knew already that his accuracy would come down as he got more and more excited. But that was OK. We weren't talking about nuclear nonproliferation. And so General Asifi got to what I know was the culminating point as I was asked about the history and the culture of Afghanistan, the traditions. He was more and more excited. And so then my interpreter, Dr. Najib, turned to me very excited and said, and last, in, in summary, what General Sifi wants to tell you, now listen very carefully, this is what Najib tells me. We Afghan people, we have a long and a proud tradition of inviting foreigners to our country and hospitalizing them. <laughs> and I think, I think what Dr. Najib meant to say was showing them great hospitality, <clears throat> but the fact that I'm still not sure <laughs> indicates that I'm no expert on Afghanistan. So let's get started. Let me um, start with some brief uh, opening remarks uh, on tonight's topic, and that I'm hoping that this will then inform our subsequent conversation up here on the stage with uh, Nadja and you, the audience. After completing my assignment as the uh, U.S. Ambassador in Afghanistan, I've been blessed to belong to the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University, to belong to their faculty and, and spend part of my time and energy there at Stanford University studying interstate violence. I'm co-leading a Stanford American Academy of Arts and Sciences project that's titled Civil Wars and International Response. Uh, about a year and a half ago, we published two volumes of the American Academy's journal called Daedalus Quarterly that had a set of essays on this topic, which uh, I'm proud of. Uh, 
I'm also a member of the congressionally mandated task force on extremism in fragile states. My own professional experience in the field, in the fields of statecraft, development and defense, coupled with opportunities in recent years to exchange ideas with some of the best American and international academics and policy practitioners has really shaped my thinking. My thinking actually continues to evolve on the value of diplomatic and foreign assistance tools to mitigate and prevent violent extremism and conflict. So I'd like to talk to you then briefly three observations. The first is on the importance of prevention. The second is on the components of an effective prevention policy and strategy. And then number three, a few words of caution. First, on the importance of prevention. When the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks Upon the United States, better known to all of us as the 9-11 Commission, issued its findings in May of 2004, it offered three broad policy recommendations. First, to strengthen efforts to defend the homeland against future terrorist attacks. Second, to attack and defeat international terrorist organizations around the world. And third, address the political, economic, and social conditions that spawn terrorism. The United States since that time has pursued the first two goals with some effect. Our nation has not suffered a major terrorist attack at the scale of 9-11 some 10 years hence, or some 17 years hence. Our military and intelligence agencies have captured and killed numerous international terrorist leaders and dismantled their networks. However, our country cannot claim progress against the third goal, addressing the political, economic, and social conditions that give rise to terrorism. Indeed, I would argue we've lost ground. Here's some empirical evidence. Worldwide, terrorist attacks have increased fivefold since 2001. The number of self-professed Salafi jihadist fighters has more than tripled. And they are now present in 19 countries in the Sahel, the Horn of Africa, and the Near East. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and affiliated groups now have more than 30,000 fighters. This is four times the number that they had in 2001. And they're present now in more than 100 countries. There are more than twice as many Salafi terrorist groups than there were in 2001. And 77% of the conflicts in the Middle East, the Horn of Africa, and the Sahel have a violent extremist element to them, whereas 22% of them did in 2001. So the trends aren't good, but why does this matter at all? I'd give three reasons. First of all, effectiveness. Since 9-11, we focused on disrupting, degrading, dismantling, and decimating terrorist networks overseas, 
through a variety of means, but they've been primarily military. Yet despite impressive tactical U.S. successes on the battlefield against terrorist groups, exploiting exclusionary governance, political instability, and local conflicts not merely permit, but they thrive. Since 2001, jihadist groups have participated in major insurgencies in Iraq, in Syria, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Nigeria, and Mali. In none of these conflicts has the U.S. and its partners been able to completely contain or mitigate the threat. Instead, when we have supposedly defeated groups in these countries, <clears throat> they've managed to stage comebacks. A second reason that I think that this is important, it's the cost. The cost of our current approach are unsustainable. Over the past 18 years, 10,000 Americans have lost their lives, 50,000 Americans have been wounded, fighting this threat at an estimated cost of $5.9 trillion. We cannot afford this price tag, especially at a time when we are thinking about refocusing our defense efforts and our strategy on great power competition. And it makes good business sense. Thanks. And it makes very good business sense to think harder about prevention. The most pessimistic estimates place the cost-effectiveness ratio of investments geared towards the prevention at $2 for every dollar that is invested. Two of the more recent estimates conducted by the United Nations and the World Bank in 2017 and the Institute for Economics and Peace in 2018 put the ratio at 16 to 1. So a preventive need not be costly or not need be ambitious. To the contrary, in the longer term, it will result in significant cost savings. And third, strategic consequences. The speed and the spread of wars of internal disorder fueled by violent extremist ideology contributes to chaos and coercion. This, in turn, undermines the appeal of universal democratic values and forecloses future market opportunities, threatens to expand regional conflicts, and provides openings to nation-state rivals that are seeking to displace American influence around the world. It seems clear that for reasons of effectiveness, for economy, and for grand strategy then, we must focus on the third recommendation of the 9-11 Commission, and that is to address the political, economic, and social conditions that do spawn terrorism. In other words, we need to work to prevent the underlying causes of violent extremism. This brings me to my second point, the outlines of what would be an effective prevention policy and strategy. Here I'm drawing on the findings included in the recently published report 
of our Task Force on Extremism in Fragile States, which I mentioned a moment ago. A word about the Task Force. Our Congressional Charter, with the United States Institute of Peace serving as the executive agent, was to develop a comprehensive plan to present the underlying to prevent the underlying causes of extremism in fragile states. We were asked to look primarily at the Sahel and the Horn of Africa and the Middle East regions. Now the co-chairs of this task force were former governor of New Jersey, Tom Keene, and former Congressman Lee Hamilton of Indiana. And this was very appropriate because these two were the co-chairs of the 9-11 Commission that issued its findings 15 years ago. Governor Keene and Congressman Hamilton brought extraordinary wisdom to our proceedings, and they brought great context as well. Our task force report, which is titled Preventing Extremism in Fragile States and a New Approach, was released on February the 26th. It's publicly available. And it offers three categories of policy prescription that I think are very consistent with the Global Fragility Act legislation that's being debated on Capitol Hill, to which Adrian referred to, supported by Mercy Corps. So first, our government must develop a joint strategy in preventing and the underlying causes of extremism. We must be clear and posit extremism as primarily a political and an ideological problem, not as a military problem. The antidote to fight extremist ideology, therefore, must be political, not military in nature. The key is identifying and building partnerships with leaders, civil society, and private sector actors in fragile states who are all committed to governing in an accountable manner. But inclusive institutions, accountable government, and civil participation cannot be imposed from the outside. With the United States, and what the United States can do is to identify, to encourage and build partnerships with leaders in fragile states including nationally and locally, both in government and in civil society, with those, especially women, youth, and in the private sector who are committed to building trust in their states and within their societies. Informed by lessons learned about what works, the purpose should be to create a common government-wide understanding of the underlying conditions that breed extremism, ways to address these underlying conditions, the criteria by which the United States should engage preventively, and effective approaches for engaging fragile states preventively. The goal here should be to create shared understandings of extremism as a political and an ideological problem to develop joint strategies throughout our government and norms for the public and private sector, especially including NGOs such as Mercy Corps,
for addressing underlying causes of extremism. We must create a common framework for thinking and establish unity of national effort. So our task force second recommendation is to ensure that the United States government agencies have the resources and the authorities they need to formulate and conduct effective policies within this shared framework. The Congress and the executive branch should launch what we call the Strategic Prevention Initiative to align all U.S. policy instruments from bilateral assistance to diplomatic engagement to in the support of prevention. The Congress should authorize the Department of State to lead this overall effort with policy formulation and advancing diplomatic and political efforts, USAID to lead the implementation of civilian assistance program, the Treasury Department to lead U.S. contributions to multilateral entities, and the Department of Defense to support this prevention strategy. Several important, but not necessarily headline-grabbing aspects of the Strategic Prevention Initiative that Congress and the administration must put in place if this is to succeed. First, empower chiefs of mission, ambassadors, and their embassy teams to create prevention programs tailored to local conditions and underwrite the risk that's inherent in such delegations of authority. Second, to reverse to recruit and professionally nurture a cadre of diplomats and development specialists with deep regional expertise, in particular fragile states around the world. This can be a very difficult task because many of the fragile states around the world have rather unique language groups uh, that can't then lead to a larger career, and they have unique cultures and histories that to become a deep expert is then not necessarily an investment in something that can put you on the larger world stage as a diplomat or a development specialist. Third, our intelligence community must increase its emphasis on the understanding of the political, economic, and social factors that contribute to alienation and to the rise of extremist ideology. I think our intelligence community over the last two decades has been extraordinarily effective in mapping lethal terrorist networks and helping the CIA and U.S. military forces with precise targeting information. And this intelligence has truly helped keep the homeland safe, but it's tactical. Prevention is strategic and requires different collection priorities and different kinds of expertise. Fourth and last, we need multi-year programmatic funding for prevention programs if they're going to work. Prevention necessitates a long-term patient approach. The uncertainty associated with one-year project timelines complicates planning and undermines our efforts to convince local partners to invest in the more distant future. And our task force third recommendation is for our Congress to establish a new international platform for donors and for the private sector to pool their resources and to coordinate their activities in support of prevention, what we call the Partnership Development Fund. And this would ensure that work on prevention 
being done by the United States is matched by international donors who share our same goals. It would also create a mechanism for other countries to share the burdens and to incentivize what we call an enterprise-driven approach. The single unified source of assistance then might entice fragile states that would otherwise look elsewhere for help receiving it today from autocratic states that then give rise to Venezuela's, to Cambodia's, and to Syria. So let me close then with the third and a final observation on the application of diplomatic and foreign assistance tools to mitigate and prevent violent extremism and conflict and the value of prioritizing such an approach. Don't confuse prevention with reactive intervention. Americans in the world have rightly been disappointed with the results of our costly military campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan in the 21st century. Hugely expensive, protracted, globally distracting, and damaging to our country's prestige abroad, there has been now an understandable tendency by our politicians, by pundits, and by citizens to conclude that when dealing with fragile states, that nothing can be done. So the best course of action is to do nothing. But Iraq and Afghanistan and other ongoing U.S. military interventions in the Sahel, in the Horn of Africa, in the Middle East, in Central Asia, were not, of course, wars of prevention. Take Afghanistan. Afghanistan, by 9-11, was a witch's brew of brutal civil war, toxic ethnic intolerance, and futile political priorities and practices masquerading as religious destiny, and in part unwittingly created by a well-intentioned, but while we know, looking back, no, was short-sighted U.S. foreign policy goals in the 1980s followed by abandonment of Afghanistan in the 1990s. When the armed forces of the United States and our allies entered Afghanistan in October of 2001, they were operating in a totally and catastrophically failed state. The subsequent missions for our diplomats, for our development specialists, and for our soldiers was not state building and was not reconstruction. The mission was far more daunting. It was the creation out of whole cloth of political infrastructure, security forces, and an economy. In a distant land about with which we had little knowledge. With the best of intentions, funded by fuel, <coughs> fueled very much by American can-do spirit, we went about the task of trying to stabilize Afghanistan and get it on the road to Denmark. We hope that with enough resources, with enough commitment, we could help establish within a few years' time political and economic institutions necessary for Afghanistan and their people to find lasting peace and a steadily improving material life. But norms and sense of collective identity underpin the success of nation states, and these take decades 
and even centuries, not years, to develop. The former British Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, once described England's difficult path from the Magna Carta in 1215 to the glorious revolution of 1688, punctuated regularly by civil wars and by bouts of violence. And in describing that period of time, that long march of centuries, and the lessons learned, Prime Minister Brown wrote, in establishing the rule of law, the first five centuries are always the hardest. <laughs> and while foreigners can provide support, the development process is inevitably slow and must be organic. A failed state serving as a cauldron for violent extremism with transnational ambitions is a patient in the emergency room requiring massive and expensive medical intervention, and even then, with outcomes being problematic. Perhaps better, then, to think harder about how to keep squandering our national resources in the emergency rooms of the world and focus more at a much lower cost on prevention. We have the right tools. Great organizations like Mercy Corps make me confident that this is so. All we require is the political will and the collective wisdom. So thank you very much. I apologize uh, up here on the stage. What uh, I've got a little bit of reflection off of my, <laughs> off of my uh, plastic uh, binders here. But uh, I thank you for bearing with me, and I'm looking now more forward to getting ready for the uh, conversation. So, Naja. Ambassador, those were, is, there, is your mic working? Good. Great, perfect. Um, before going into a question and answer session with you, I wanted to take a couple minutes and uh, talk a little bit about our work in Afghanistan in really brief. So in my capacity, um, I serve five countries uh, at Mercy Corps. One of them is Afghanistan. And we have been in Afghanistan for about 33 years, since 1986 now. Afghanistan, as many of you know, has been in uh, cycles of war for the last 40 years. Um, maybe one of the most fragile countries out there. The work we are doing uh, is focused on, uh, on some of the really key needs in that country. So this is a country of about 30, 30 to 35 million people. Uh, there hasn't been a census for the longest time, so it's all estimates. And about 6 million people. So one in five, let's say, 20% of the population is in need of um, assistance, of protection, of um, shelter. And uh, the, the amount of need that you see in the country is immense. But the spirit of the people is not to be found anywhere else. Um, I was uh, a few months ago giving a presentation to our own board, Mercy Corps board, about the work there. And somebody asked me, how do you make people more resilient in Afghanistan? And I had to think about um, being in Badakhshan. Badakhshan is a, um, this beautiful, rugged, mountainous area between Afghanistan and, and Tajikistan. And uh, we were out there uh, working on health centers where there's pretty much nothing for miles and miles. And there's 
no roads really. Um, and uh, we went and met with some of the community members and there was hardly anything at all growing in that area. And I was wondering how, how are these people making do? And uh, they are amazingly hospitable, hospitalizable people. <laughs> I think the hospitalized part is correct as well. You know, that is part of the history of Afghanistan. All the foreigners there from Alexander onwards <laughs> did get hospitalized in their own way. But they um, were such amazing, amazingly um, hospitable people and uh, had nothing, almost near nothing. And, uh, but they were armed to the nth degree, so everybody left their Clash and Cove versions on the side as we came together to meet. Uh, we have a, a policy not to be armed, um, so it's always fun to get together when you have to check your arms at the door when you're coming to a community meeting. Um, so I haven't seen a more resilient people, a more resilient nation who's gone through so much um, and has such huge hearts, really, really big hearts. Um, but the work we are doing over there, we're working a lot with farmers at the markets level, um, helping them get more food secure. We are working with youth a lot in Afghanistan. Um, helping people get the skills for employability, helping them set up their own businesses. We are also working um, on energy. So about only 27% of the country has electricity, which is in abundance over here right now. Um, and the rest are off the grid. And for those who do have electricity, even those have very random access to it. So we're trying to build um, a system that would allow folks to have, um, make use of solar energy. And I'm really proud of the work we're doing there. And I think that's going to be phenomenal. It will do for electricity and for Afghanistan what the mobile phone did for most of the world where there were no phone lines. Um, I uh, want to thank you for all the work that you've done. Um, talking about prevention, that is something that we've been doing research on as well. And um, it, it's an ongoing thing for us to learn from what we're doing and how to keep that discourse alive within the organization as well. Um, so one recent research piece that we did actually revealed that when you uh, combine vocational training, which are, we are doing with a lot of, of youth, and then combine that with some economic cash in hand, so cash transfers in this particular case, um, we saw a decline in people's support for armed um, groups and uh, their activities for in like pro-armed groups, violent groups in Afghanistan. Um, and that's something that's caused a lot of debate internally within the agency. We are still learning from it and that uh, drives the work we're doing in terms of addressing root causes rather than just the needs of the day. But I wanna come back to you and um, First of all, it is an honor to share the stage with you. What an amazing career. And, and you continue to amaze with the work that you're doing now. So especially when it comes to Afghanistan, I think you are one of the folks who've had the most impact on that country in the past um, so many decades. Going um, in and being the chief strategist for the development of the Afghan National Army, I mean, that is huge. Um, then being the commander of the coalition forces, 
and then coming in as an ambassador. So before going to questions with all of you, and please get your questions ready, um, the question I want to start off with is a hallmark uh, of your time as ambassador was um, the civilian surge. And uh, if you could tell us what the vision was behind the civilian surge and what are some of the lessons that you've learned from that time? Um, it, again, we, you had just gone through, Naja, what uh, some of the things that Mercy Corps is doing in Afghanistan. And I'll you know, say from firsthand experience, I'll, I'll second all of that. And you do wonderful things globally. <laughs> the surge that uh, you're talking about, of course, was President Obama's surge of both military and civilians into Afghanistan in 2009. You recall that candidate Obama uh, in 2008 in an intense uh, political campaign had called Iraq a war of choice, and it was a bad choice, according to President Obama. I think many would agree. Uh, and Afghanistan was a war of necessity that had been neglected. So as he took office, then it was clear that he was going to do more in Afghanistan, but it was not clear exactly what that meant. We just knew we were going to do more. Uh, he went through a long deliberation of strategic options and then came out on the side that in the fall of 2009, uh, we would start to uh, dramatically increase our military forces. They were to rise to 100,000 uh, forces. And he also directed then a civilian surge in parallel. What, well, what was the civilian surge to do? It was to help the Afghans to uh, strengthen their government, uh, improve the quality of governance. It, was, it had a big economic component. It had a civil society component. Now, this surge, uh, we started when I went to Afghanistan with my wife in May of 2009. We had about 325 civilians in the embassy. Two years later, we were at 1,450. Now, that sounds, uh, it, that sounds to this audience, well, if the military is at 100,000, that's pretty paltry, isn't it, going from 325 civilians to 1,450? It was huge. It was unprecedented. 18 different departments and agencies. Remember, our military is designed to be expeditionary. They come with their own security, their logistics, their communication. It is what they are designed to do. We don't fight in the homeland. We fight abroad. Civilian organizations, they're not designed to do this. So every single officer that went to that embassy, treasury, commerce, agriculture, we had to then recruit them, all volunteers. The government doesn't order civilians to go to Afghanistan or Iraq, uh, train. And then our team, some of who's here, our team had to think through how do we receive these people. They need communications, they need mobility, they need security, and on it goes. So this was absolutely uh, a huge enterprise. And we became the largest embassy in numbers by 2011. Our development budget went from $2.2 billion to $4.2 billion a year. That's the largest still in history bilateral aid budget. So that's the background on the surge. So what, what lessons do we uh, draw from this? Well, the first is this question of how ambitious do you wish to be as a country in time of crises of putting civilians abroad? I would say that our lesson learned, as proud as I am for how well our team did on the ground, it was unsustainable. We couldn't get the administration, we couldn't get the Congress 
to make the changes to personnel policies that we needed in order for this to sustain itself over time. So what we then have to think about is lowering levels of ambition. I've already said that we're talking in Afghanistan, it was an industrial strength intervention, so to speak. I would say in the future, learn these lessons uh, and don't repeat what we tried to do in Afghanistan unless we decide as a people collectively that we have a core national interest. And a couple of other points that I'd make then related to all this, lessons learned for our country, at least lessons learned for me. Number two is when we put the military into a country for an intervention, everything changes at that point. Now, no matter what we say the policy is, it is going to be led by the military. Why would that be? Well, you think about it. We put military into harm's way. What's the commander-in-chief thinking? I've got to protect those troops. He's then thinking hard about that. President Obama did. President Bush did. I'm sure President Trump thinks about it a lot, too. And as they think about protecting that force, can you imagine at the video teleconference with President Obama, and I had a lot of them with the military commanders sitting beside me, me as the ambassador, is President Obama asking a lot of questions about, you know, Carl, ambassador, how many schools did we open this week? Uh, how many hospitals did we open? No, he's asking questions about the military campaign, casualties, what's the plan? Because eventually, that commander-in-chief, the president, wants to know when are we going to be able to withdraw those forces because we have global commitments. So that's the second point. That put troops in, and no matter how hard you say it's really about diplomacy leading, it's about development leading, things have changed dramatically. Third point I'd make is with regard then to the American people as they look at these conflicts. And take a quick survey here. Um, Raise your hand if we had a draft army. Raise your hand if you think 10 years after 9-11 with a draft army, we'd have 100,000 troops in Afghanistan. Raise your hand. Now, why are hands not going up? Because the American people, if they had sons and daughters being drafted and sent to Afghanistan, they'd be asking their congressmen a lot of questions, just like they did during the Vietnam War. So it's a point more, Najee, more indirectly related, but it gets to this level of ambition when our military is disconnected from the American people, and I'd be, maybe be a little bit too hard here, where it's Washington armies, Washington's army, and not the people's army, then campaigns like Afghanistan get started and they can uh, go awry. Um, I'll stop there. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you for that very candid response. Um, let's come to the Taliban talks that are underway right now. Your successor as ambassador to Afghanistan, Ambassador Ryan Crocker, um, recently penned, actually in January, penned an op-ed and called these talks surrender, described them as surrender. Um, he argued that the absence of the Afghan government from being on the table and uh, that for us to not push through our core values, such as women's rights, um, is, is not the right tone to set. It undermines prospects of peace for the longer term. What are your views? Yeah, 
uh, a very difficult and uh, for people uh, for people like myself who have served in Afghanistan, uh, it's uh, it can be painful to uh, to consider this problem. It's a real dilemma. The United States has been in Afghanistan now for 18 years, about 18 years. Anybody who would say we haven't accomplished some good things there, I'd have a strong argument with them. Look at the education system that didn't exist. Look at the healthcare system. It did not exist. Look at many indicators in Afghanistan. Look how women in the urban areas now live, not great, but compared to the Taliban feudal areas, and we've made a lot of progress. But 18 years into it then, that's when you have to start to ask the hard questions about what is the American national interest. Well, if we say it's terrorism and we've got to have 10,000 troops in Afghanistan to fight terrorism there, then what about Mali? What about Libya? What about Yemen? So that's one question. People, could, people have also suggested that, well, international jihadism militant jihadism begins in Afghanistan with the Soviets. So is there not a big cost if the United States pulls out and it collapses where the international jihadists say we beat two superpowers and gives even more lifeblood to their movements? I think we're far enough removed in time. I'm skeptical of that argument. What about geopolitics? We need to be in Afghanistan because Iran's to the west, nuclear-armed Pakistan to the southeast, to the east. Russia to the north, rising China to the east. That's a reason we should be there. Um, we can debate that. But it's something that is an argument that's given. And then the final point is economics. What's the core American national economic interest in Afghanistan? There I have to say, at this stage at least, it's not great. So that gets Najee then to the final question. I think the more compelling one is the moral imperative. Because it is true for 18 years, we've been looking Afghan women in the eyes, secretaries of state, saying, we're with you. We've had secretaries of defense looking at the Afghan army saying, we are with you. I, as the ambassador, have been all around that country to every province looking at Afghan soldiers, Afghan women, Hazara minority groups saying, we are with you. That's the hard question. But you still then have to come back and say it is 18 years later, the world is changing, we've got other demands out there, and then in a sense as we're talking about prevention and the cost effectiveness about prevention, if you take all of those resources to include strategic opportunity costs for us to be in Afghanistan, is there an argument that even that, those resources might be spent better elsewhere? Uh, painful, uh, the fact that Afghan women and civil society and the government are not at the negotiating table. To me, I find deeply troubling. But it still begs the question, if you can't get a negotiated settlement that looks out for the interest of these Afghan people for two decades, we've been saying we are with you, what's the alternative then? All good points. So prevention. Um, Thank you for all your work that you're doing on prevention. May I ask you to describe for this audience what prevention, a strategy of prevention, would look like in a country like Afghanistan? Well, 
once again, Afghanistan is the industrial strength of military intervention. But I'd say, Nadia, that you can look at a lot of the work and a lot of success we've had in Afghanistan, and you can be proud of what it's accomplished in Afghanistan. I think there's tremendous lessons learned for a broader prevention strategy. So a broader prevention strategy, first of all, it needs a statutory basis, and that's the importance of the Global Fragility Act, because politicians and bureaucratic leaders on their own aren't inclined to spend money on things that they can't see, and prevention you can't see. How do you know if prevention worked? Uh, but there's a lot that we've done at local levels in Afghanistan and many places around the world that the Mercy Corps is doing today, and at the national level that I think can provide insights into what a strategy could look like. Now, it's got to be tailored to the particular conditions of the country. How important is it to the United States? Because that gets into how sustainable will be our effort. But let's take some examples then locally in Afghanistan. A program that was extraordinarily powerful in Afghanistan in terms of building resilient communities and uplifting oppressed women, uplifting oppressed groups was the, uh, the midwives program. And the midwives program uh, was a program that a couple of our partners were behind, very much the United States was behind. And so midwives uh, brought from rural areas of Afghanistan some of the best and brightest from those rural areas. We had to negotiate with the uh, elders about what would the education system be like that they would go when they'd go to a city like Herat for maybe a year or two years, sophisticated program. And then we'd have negotiations about would they be living in secluded dormitories, and on it went. But we finally got the program working. And then these women would return to these rural areas, and suddenly they were rock stars because they were keeping women healthy. They were instrumental, and it was evident to even the most conservative tribal elders were getting good outcomes. And guess what then? The status of women rising. Well, you talk about then, if you're an extremist and you're trying to recruit with your hateful ideology and uh, ideology where women are going to be prisoners in their home and they go into a village like that, there's resilience there. So you think about programs like that and you think about that, can they be replicated? You also think about building islands of excellence around a country. The national level can be much harder. Let's talk about the, uh, the security forces at the national level. We want to train a good, accountable army. We want to train good police forces. Well, then you've got the ruling elite and the head of that country, in fact, might not want good, accountable security forces because they might end up one day replacing him. And it could be life-threatening. Or maybe it's such a good patronage opportunity, they want to then, whatever the Americans are trying to do, the British, whatever the international community is trying to do, they want it to be a patronage network. So are your interests aligned? But that said, there's still opportunities that we can see at the national level, very dependent upon the conditions of the particular country. Take the media as an example. In Afghanistan, I think you're aware, Najib, we've had good success over years with the United States working with NGOs, helping the media of Afghanistan to grow. And Afghanistan's got some weak political institutions. What's been very impressive is the fourth estate. 
And because the executive, the legislature, the judicial has got their own weaknesses, then that media investment's been important. And I think if Afghanistan will succeed, that's going to be part of it. The second and the other observation I'd have at the national level, and here you have to be very careful, is trying to find the right upcoming leaders. It's got to be organic within the country that they are given the opportunity then to get onto the stage, but we can be helpful. I'll never forget a conversation that I had in uh, Afghanistan. I had a Department of Justice attorney come in, and uh, she was uh, just uh, shaking her head and was having a really bad day because uh, the Attorney General's office at that point in time was extraordinarily corrupt and uh, were doing some pretty bad things. And she came in with a couple of her colleagues and I asked them as they're sitting in the uh, living room and we're having, a, uh, we're having a soda together and said, have any of you ever seen this work anywhere? And one of the attorneys said, yeah. It, uh, it actually worked in Kosovo. And I said, well, what was the difference? He said, well, the levels of corruption were actually worse than they are in Afghanistan, but the attorney general was a good, good person, and he just went after it, and he had the political support. So we never forget, then, that people also matter. Thank you. Those are heartening words. So I think at this point, um, let's take some questions from the audience, and I would like help from folks back because it's really hard to see who might raise their hands. Um, questions? And actually, uh, if you could step up to the microphone up here to ask your question. Uh, so if you can please step on up here if you have a question. And uh, we prefer if you ask a question rather than a statement. We are recording this evening. So if you can try to be clear and concise, that would be very helpful. So if you have a question, feel free to come on up here. And don't put your question in a document protector. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it'd be great to get like sets of questions together. Well, we first need the first brave person. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> Could you also say uh, who you are? Yes. Hi, I'm Michael Kazi. Um, I have a question regarding remittances and folks who've come over um, from Afghanistan on the... Uh, <laughs> Interpreter visa. If, I've had a question regarding if you've seen any impact at all from remittances being sent to back to communities and any sort of you know, local startups, or if um, the visa has created a sort of brain drain in those communities. So well, it's, a, it's a great question. First of all, in the answer of remittances, the answer is I don't know. I would assume that knowing Afghan culture, uh, that the broader Afghan community, I know sends many remittances back to their uh, country and to their extended uh, families. Although it was interesting when the, uh, after 9-11, uh, there were many in uh, uh, Afghan Americans that, and expatriates around the world that went back to uh, Afghanistan and there was a disillusionment that set in probably around 2006, 2007, many came home. On the, uh, the question of the interpreter visas, uh, this is a two-part uh, two answer. Uh, the special visa program, the special visa program is you serve for a period of X months, it changes, X years as an interpreter for the U.S. military forces, then you are guaranteed a visa and eventual citizenship to the United States. Uh, that group 
uh, you can make a strong argument that that program uh, was a necessity because of the danger that those interpreters then would face uh, from extremists that if they couldn't get to them, could get to their families. I don't know how we could have worked without that program. The second category, though, was visas then being extended to Afghan nationals who didn't work directly for didn't work with the United States military. They worked, say, at the United States Embassy. You'll recall we had large numbers that were there. And uh, the a move had been made in Congress to extend that uh, visa program to all of them. I argued against that, and I lost the uh, case. Um, my argument was on a case-by-case basis, we had good enough intelligence, we could tell if somebody was under threat, and of course then, at that point in time, give them the visa, but it was carte blanche. Um, I lost the argument, I left as the ambassador. One year after I left as ambassador, about 90% of our Afghan nationals in this embassy, about 500 of them, had left. Uh, and it's fair to say they weren't, they weren't under uh, threat. Many of them were. There were a couple that, uh, that were under threat. I guess the lesson that I learned from all of that is that now we're 18 years into this, as I've said several times now, and if we're still at a point where uh, we're saying that we need to grant these visas because the Afghans are serving the United States and we need to take care of them and be even more generous even if they're not under threat, then you start to ask the harder questions. 18 years after this began, why are they not determined to stay in their own country and work for the future. And I think that uh, to get very specifically to the question on the brain drain, yes, yeah, there's been a, a brain drain there. It, I, don't think it's been, uh, I don't think it's been in the main good for the United States. Go work for the United States Embassy for a year, and then you get to go to the United States. Thank you very much. Uh, my name's James Baker. My question is that I, I think we're we're largely familiar with the scenario before or between the Soviet invasion and the Charlie Wilson's war, that whole thing, how the U.S. kind of abandoned their uh, proxies there. But during that whole time, there was another group that was very involved, and I'm thinking of the the madrasas, um, you know, financed by Saudis, Wahhabis. We don't, you know, whatever. What do you see the role of that whole system on the Afghan diaspora in Pakistan and how that affects the, you know, the culture at large. Yeah, and I'd, uh, I think also, I uh, think, Najib, maybe you have some, uh, might have some observations here, but it's been a, uh, it's been a real challenge that uh, the Taliban, to give the Taliban its uh, dues, when it began its advance uh, towards the latter stages of the Afghan civil war, that it was welcomed in many of the areas that was marching into uh, as people that would then relieve them from the depredations of Mujahideen leaders who were just raping and plundering and abusing the Afghan people, especially the Pashtuns. So it was somewhat of a Pashtun chauvinistic movement that was advancing. It's not that the Afghan people loved the Taliban uh, feudal way of governing, but they at least then would have justice, albeit sometimes rather brutal, but their dignity would be restored. Women hugely suffered, though, under it. And then Taliban began misrule shortly after uh, taking power itself. This had several consequences. First of all, 
we forgot that when Taliban first rose to power, that they were welcomed. What did we do after 9-11 when we went into Afghanistan? Who were our allies? The same warlords and mujahideens whose depredation had led to the rise of the Taliban. So as we went in, Taliban was hated, uh, but we made it a black and white with no historical context, and we were to pay a price for that. It's hard to avoid. When we went into Afghanistan, there was no Afghan army. We, we had an economy of force operation, so we relied on these mujahideen. Now, to get to Pakistan, Pakistan was funding the Taliban and looked and still looks, I believe, as the Taliban as being an extension or a tool for the Pakistani military and its intelligence networks to maintain a kind of influence over Afghanistan. The Pakistanis lack strategic depth. They're up against a strong India. The military overstates the case to get resources, but they look at Taliban as their ally. And we've been plagued by that since 2001, where on the surface we're going to tell Islamabad publicly, you're our ally in the war on terror, but the reality is they were funding and they were abetting and providing Taliban with sanctuary. Part of then a weak Pakistan trying to influence Afghanistan was using that refugee population. Pakistan was very generous in the 1980s. They took in millions of Afghan refugees who are still living in camps. But there was an effort also to radicalize them. The education that they offered was the extremist madrasa education that you talk about. So uh, the outcome here has been that I believe they have helped further radicalize the Pashtun tribal belts, especially in the south and parts of the east, and it's made then national reconciliation much more difficult. But Nadja, I, I know you, you know that area very well. Yeah, but I don't have anything else to add. I actually sometimes just wonder if we could learn from what the madrasas have done and mm -hmm. in terms of education for the work that we are trying to do and get more kids into school when they're out of school. There are lots of kids out of school in both of these countries, uh -huh. Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, how do we learn from the success of the madrasas and how do we replicate that level of success and get more um, education that allows for critical thinking, for using your own brain than the road system that's being used in the madrasas? And I think, Nadja, that uh, I know at least on the Afghan side, I don't know in Pakistan, but on the Afghan side, if you say the word madrasa, you, you should be careful to assume that all madrasas then are leading to this kind of radicalization. Not the case. In fact, there were several movements inside of Afghanistan where there were very thoughtful religious leaders that were thinking more like the Americans have traditionally thought about our religious schools. There would be a core religious value that was taught there, but we're thinking about ways, how do you integrate then math, science, and even some of the liberal arts into the curriculum. Right, and now even there's a lot of work going on in how to do that integration much more. Yeah. Um, very difficult topic, though. For Thank sure. You. Great question. Thank you. We have time for maybe one more question. One, one, more. one more question. Okay. Hello, my name is Leah. And um, in listening to your talk, Ambassador, I, I was just wondering, um, because you talked about prevention, and it seems like in order to prevent, you must have a theory of what the causes are of... Uh, uh, extremism and, and violent extremism. So um, I was just wondering if, if you and both of you could specify what that theory is. 
Do you want to? <laughs> no, I think you've given it way more thought, so please. <laughs> uh, I know Mercy Corps has given this a, uh, a heck of a lot of thought. Um, yeah, it's, uh, the starting point is just fragmentation of uh, society and the fragmentation driven by the weakening of a government that uh, lacks accountability and is unable to provide for fairly for people's security, uh, provide a system of justice, looked at as preferential towards certain ethnic groups or elite groups or certain ethnic groups or tribal groups. And this is then the idea that this is what needs to prevent it. And to prevent that, you need social resilience and you need more state resilience. Uh, to try to get then, though, a coherent strategy, a coherent external strategy, United Nations, United States, our partners, to deal with this problem, that's what really the Global Fragility Act mm -hmm. tries to aim at. This question of prevention, uh, we've known for decades prior to 9-11 that prevention is important, so why is it that we don't practice prevention? Well, as I said a moment ago, how do you know if prevention works? What candidate is going to stand up on the campaign trail and say, vote for me, what my foreign policy is going to have as a platform is one of prevention? Uh, that doesn't get any bite to it. And so this has plagued efforts of all governments, of all major powers, to think through what would a prevention strategy look like. And the reason I am very excited about the Global Fragility Act is that it will be a forcing function then for all our departments and agencies to have to think about it. Now, all of our departments and agencies of the U.S. government are very good when there's legislation passed to find out how do I get the resources from that act. I, I digress for a moment. I know we're uh, out of time. But it's interesting, when you look at um, cases in Africa right now, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, Sahel area, we've got some real severe problems there that we're fighting with violent extremism. The countries are tilting in a certain direction. We have what's called the Countering Violent Extremism Fund that's available, but you need violent extremists to get that fund so say you go to Nigeria and you meet with our leaders there, they'll say Boko Haram, it's Boko Haram. Well, if you say it's Boko Haram, you get money from Washington, D.C., from the counter-violent extremism program. If you talk to thoughtful Nigerians, they'll say, well, yeah, Boko Haram is certainly part of the problem. Maybe it's 20% of the problem. And we've got a lot of other problems here, too. So back to the Global Fragility Act. It's very clear in its intent that your programs have got to be aimed at the prevention to treat the underlying conditions that your question, I hope I answered. And I want to second that. Um, a lot of our work and our research also shows that injustice, a sense of injustice, is really at the heart of, uh, really becomes a breeding ground mm -hmm. for people to then take it into their own hands when they can't get justice through the system that exists. Um, I know we're out of time, but one last question <laughs> to bring it all together. So the last question I have for you is, 
Why are fragile states important? Why should anyone here, why should we care about them? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons that I would say in this year of 2019 that fragile states are even more important to America's security than they were, say, the day after 9-11. A couple of points. First of all, we've talked about uh, international uh, terrorism and the threat to the homeland. We can't forget 9-11 and let our guard down. But what's becoming increasingly evident as these ideologies spread, and they're spreading, as I mentioned, 100 countries now that had foreign fighters in uh, Syria and the spread of al-Qaeda and its affiliates throughout the Sahel and the Middle East and through Central Asia, Horn of Africa. When you think about these ideologies, they are not ideologies where they're trying to capture the capital of a state. These are the so-called rebels of the divine. They want something beyond the international order. They have a direct mission from heaven. And how do you negotiate out with groups like that it's easier when everyone's trying to capture the capital and the prestige and the resources that go with that. This is a very worrisome problem. Point number two is a very interesting issue that we're looking now very closely within this American Academy of Arts and Sciences group I've been working with, the threat of pandemics. When you get the mix of pandemics and the potential for pandemics coming from fragile states, then the consequences of that for global order are tremendous. Look at the outbreak of Ebola that occurred several years ago in West Africa, and two of those three states had had civil wars in the 1990s. They had recovered, but they had very weak infrastructures. Imagine if they had ongoing civil wars when that outbreak occurred. What do you do if you're the United States and you've now got a global pandemic breaking out do you go send in troops and try to contain it? Do you send in troops fighting rebels as you get into the country? So that's the second. The third, I think, is actually the most profound and the worrisome here. During the Cold War, we had no way of addressing civil wars. It was a zero-sum game. After the end of the Cold War, the world came uh, to develop what was called the standard treatment regime. It was a political science term. And the standard treatment regime was what? It was if you have fragile states or states that might have had a civil war, negotiate a settlement, send in peacekeepers, and have a development program. You think back before 1990, that didn't exist. There was no consensus. But we actually developed a consensus in the 1990s. And you know what? It's worked pretty well. And you don't know it works well because it's not news. But cases like Sierra Leone, it's worked pretty well. That consensus is breaking down again now because we're getting back to Cold War kind of logic of state competition, zero-sum games, autocratic regimes versus the democracies of the world. And I fear that if the United States doesn't show leadership in trying to deal with this problem of fragility and work through prevention, we could find ourselves in 10 or 15 years in proxy wars around the world that resemble tragically 
the way it looked during the Cold War. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I would... I'd like to invite Lucy, our esteemed board member, one of the most fun board members as well. <laughs> I don't have anything fun right now, though, but um, thank you so much. Um, I joined the board of Mercy Corps because of this incredible organization and its staff, its uh, board members, its supporters uh, really believe that a better world is possible. And with our global team of 5,500 humanitarian um, workers around the world, 40 countries around the world, working on the front line of conflict and disaster um, to not only commit to alleviate human suffering and providing a vital life-saving mission, but to also um, addressing, importantly, as we were talking tonight, the root causes of conflict, or in the words of Ambassador Eikenberry, uh, prevention. This evening's lecture and thoughtful discussion have really illuminated the need for that kind of prevention and peace building. We know that by fostering tolerant, just communities and inclusive participatory governance, we can begin to diffuse the drivers of conflict and the cause of immense humanitarian suffering around the world. I'd like to thank Ambassador Eikenberry for participating in this evening's lively discussion and providing an opportunity for us to learn with from his decades of experience in preventing and resolving violent conflict and supporting a civil society. He is an extraordinary public servant when we don't see many of those. And we at Mercy Corps are so proud to be associated with him and grateful for his support. Thanks for the shout outs as well for our work. I'd also like to thank uh, Nadia for moderating this wonderful discussion and for own base of deep knowledge and commitment to the people in this world, as well as the staff um, and the entire team at Town Hall uh, for hosting us. Thank you so much for your partnership tonight. And finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank all of you for attending. You don't have to be here. Um, it's so inspiring, though, to be with people that who find this kind of information and education important and who care deeply about the fragile world we live in. Before you leave tonight, we have information about Mercy Corps. Um, you can join our email list. We'll give you lots of information um, and be in touch with us on our websites or otherwise to learn about some of the problems in the world and how we're hoping to change it um, and for future events as well. Together, we know we can build a better world. Thank you so much for being with us tonight.